of all the planets in the galaxy. They chose ours. They hide in small places. This phone is dead. What? They like the dark. Jay, any luck? Just a minute. There's nothing cute about them. They've come a long way, and they're hungry. everyone and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise one movie one entry at a time and we are back tonight to start a whole new series of films after putting poltergeist to bed once and for all we're here to discuss critters uh and as always i'm joined by my good friend jerry smith jerry how are we tonight doing great i i grew up loving this series so i'm very excited mm-hmm. to do this and we have a very special guest with us tonight. Uh, we have returning for the third time now after talking Friday the 13th in the Halloween series with us. We're joined once again by Nat Bremar. Nat, how are we? We're doing great. Thank you guys for having me back. This is so excited. Awesome. Right? It sounds like it's going to be a fun time tonight. What's interesting about this is like critters and ghoulies. Um, Puppet Master, like, these are very much outside of my wheelhouse movies. Oh, wow. Um, I, like, have never, aside from The Last Puppet Master, um, which I bought because it was a dollar on Amazon um, (laughs) on sale, I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll try it for a dollar. And I quite quite enjoyed it. Like, I had never seen a Puppet Master movie. Um, I had never watched a Critters movie until last night. Oh, really? So just the first one? Or? Just the first one oh, so Oh, my God. I'm so So it's excited. really interesting. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, tiny creature movies are very not much not – for no particular reason. It's like not like I don't like them. It's just I don't watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm super interested to kind of cover this series because – you know, the first movie was such a delight that I'm like, oh, I've I have been missing out all these years. Oh um, man, just wait for so, two and three. Mm-hmm. So I am really excited to kind of feed off Jerry and Nat's enthusiasm for these movies and dive like really deep down this rabbit hole. So um, that's really ex- it's going to be pretty exciting. So. I guess I wanted to start with because, you know, Nat, Jerry, and I were all talking beforehand about how much this these movies meant to them as kids. Um, and I'm, like, really interested to hear about, like, how this particular brand or, like, horror movie was very much your bag and was so influential growing up. So, gentlemen, have at it. 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, I'll start. Uh, Critters came to me when I was, I mean, so young. I think I saw it. Maybe It might have been one of the first, you know, kind of quote-unquote horror films I'd ever seen. We had a video store in town. Or we had a lot back then, obviously. But uh, there was one in particular that every single section that you would go in was decked out in whatever, like, respective genre it is. You know, you'd go to the action section, and there'd be this huge papier-mâché ball that's supposed to, you know, be from, like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, and you'd go to comedy stuff, and there really wasn't anything in that section. (laughs) But then you'd go into the horror section, and there'd be coffins, there'd be sound effects, you know, you'd get... Uh, spider webs, everything. It was so immersive. And I remember, uh, you know, just going into the horror section of that video store in particular and just being in love because even before I got into horror, it was that particular section of that uh, particular video store that just just sank its hooks into me. You know, it was as, as a kid, you know, you're so visual, you know, you soak everything in and go into that and seeing all these different boxes of these movies that look terrifying to me. One of the most terrifying boxes was the first Critters movie, which is funny because, I mean, anyone who has seen that movie, it's not very scary. (laughs) But but you see that monster on the cover, and as a kid, as a little kid, it's impossible not to just get excited about that. You know, we we would do this thing where, you know, uh, I grew up raised by like a single father, basically, and, you know – he, we didn't really have anything in common, but he would, you know, every weekend we'd, me, my brother, and my dad would rent a bunch of movies, like probably like six or seven in a weekend, and just watch them all together. Mm-hmm. And I remember that first time I saw Critters, because I, at the time, like I still wasn't scared by it, but it was so just immersive and enthralling to watch. And you know, uh, I'm sure you'll talk about it, Nat, but uh, Nat wrote this really great article about Critters. Uh, and mentioned, you know, how the first one is, in a lot of ways, a home invasion movie. Mm-hmm. And that's very true. That's very true. It's all about this kind of, like, small town community group of people. But it's mostly about this family trying to survive from this outside evil. And, it, you know, th- as a kid, monster movies, especially monster movies like this, like, that was my forte. That, those were the movies that just stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's so great about Critters, and I think the whole series, is it's not just about the Krites. It's not just about the monsters. It's about the people, which is a way different contrast to, like, movies like Munchies that would mm-hmm. come out. And the whole existence of that movie is the, the monsters, you know, looking up skirts. Uh, <laughs> you know, but Critters was so unique that even as a little kid, like, it was impossible not to fall in love with that series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um for me, I came to it very similarly. Uh, for me, it was one of my very, very first kind of quote-unquote horror films uh, solely because of the rating. Mm-hmm. Because my parents were kind of stingy on R. They could kind of be leaned down, but G, PG, PG-13 were all the same damn thing to my parents. <laughs> so... Uh, I think it was the fact that the Critters films are rated PG-13 that gave me an early access to it. And it was Mm -hmm. also the fact that uh, we had two video stores uh, in my hometown. One, you gotta love it, I much preferred to the other, Southwest Video, even though my uncle owned that one. (laughs) 
I would always go to the <laughs> other. <laughs> but Southwest Video one time was having this big closeout sale where they were just selling a bunch of the tapes that uh, didn't rent very well, really cheap. And among those tapes, I think my parents got like Stand By Me, which was also crucial. It became one of my favorite movies. Yeah. But among those tapes were Critters 1, 2, and 3. Oh, wow. And I was probably five. Like, this was pre-me jumping into the genre with both feet. This was maybe before even Super got into the Universal Monsters. This was right out of the gate for me. Uh, And it was solely because, you know, it had the same rating as Ghostbusters. It had to be, you know, it was fine. I think my parents legitimately thought these were kids' movies. (laughs) And I am so grateful for that because I became like obsessed. I would watch them over and over. I would watch them with my friends, you know, and, uh, you know, I wanted like, as a kid, I wanted, uh, like a, a crate so badly. Oh yeah. And I would, uh, God, by the time I was like nine, I'd be drawing my own like critters comics (laughs) <laughs> doing all sorts of stuff and uh yeah there was something about the just i immediately latched onto like little monster movies was the exact opposite as for mike they always were what i immediately went to totally and it was also like you know i'd i'd rent ghoulies as well because ghoulies also had like a pg-13 rating mm-hmm but the thing I think that makes the Critters franchise stand out, and is part of why I can't wait for you guys to get into it, especially seeing for the first time, is that while I loved Critters and I also loved Ghoulies, the thing that made Critters stand out as a series, you know, watching all the you know four films at the time, is that there is a really strong sense of continuity mm-hmm. between these four films. There are great arcs, yeah like legitimate character arcs and Mm -hmm. things that, you know, are set out kind of in the first to kind of pay off later for certain characters and like characters go through extreme changes. And then you go back and watch like the first one and you can actually see like, Oh, I get how this character starts out here and ends up here. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, even when I was really young, like I appreciated more as I got older because, you know, I just love the wacky, monstrous hand puppets. But I, I even kind of started to figure, to kind of hone in on how much I liked that at a young age. No, oh, totally. I mean, and it was, it's, it was so easy as a kid to kind of just become obsessed with these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Critters especially. I mean, I was uh, tweeting about this episode a little while ago, a couple hours ago, and I found a GIF that looks like this old VHS home video thing of like a little puppet of a Krite. And I posted it. And then Charles Piper, who's, you know, uh, an acquaintance of mine, he was, he kind of mentioned that it was from an old VHS home video that that gift originated from. And I watched it and it's like five minutes. It's called revenge of Halloween hotel. And it's kind of everything we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It was Charles as a kid with a VHS camera creating his own critters movie where this family goes on a vacation and goes to this hotel that's ran by, like, there's Kreitz, there's the Crypt Keeper, there's tons of other things. It is so much fun. But, like, I think that that really shows what these movies were to us growing up. 
mm-hmm. you know, like, like, like Nat said, like that was kind of his gateway. And for me, it definitely was because I saw creators, you know, I went through a lot of stuff as a kid and I won't go into detail like that, but like a lot of that stuff informed me kind of running to the horror genre to kind of, you know, as, as solace. But I saw critters before that, and there was no like you know other meaning like oh man I'm I'm not doing good in in life I need to kind of live vicariously through a movie no critters was just I I think honestly now that I'm thinking about it I think it was the first series that I was just ever a huge fan of mm-hmm. and you know people could argue that they kind of differ in quality you know and I'll be the first to say I'm not like the biggest fan of the fourth film but I mean. Like like you said, Matt, like there is such good continuity in all of them that there are mm-hmm. those small things in the first film that kind of make the fourth film make more sense. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many moments throughout the entire series that are huge to me. I mean, I won't get into it too much, but I mean, there's a scene, there's a moment in Critters 2 that as a horror fan, especially a young horror fan, that is the biggest blue ball of all time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Like. And there's so much to that. And as a kid, you know, you want to see, you know, maybe it's that kind of like boyish kind of stuff that, that you know, we had kind of implanted us at a, a young age. But you want to see stuff bl- like blown up. You want to see like little creatures terrorize people. And in the first film, you get that in spades. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much action in this movie. And the humor, like the humor is not as front and center as like the second film. Right, but I mean, it's impossible not to just like just be transported back into that childhood memory of being just so in love with these movies every single time that you watch them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, for me, what was interesting, kind of watching this and then reading through, like watching the first movie, was this is definitely a B movie, but mm-hmm. there was so much care that was put into this movie, like the way it looked, the way it was shot. I mean, the cast is outstanding and just perfectly cast. Um, it's something that even with independent horror today being as uh, relevant as it is, um, when I look at the type of movies that are like this right now, I, I think of the folks from Astron 6. Yeah. The folks behind movies like Manborg, for example, which the as fun as those movies are, they don't have that same level, I think, of like care put into them, nor could they for like the minuscule budgets they have, where back 30 years ago, you could have a B-movie and sink a little bit of money into it and make it look really damn good. And I think that's part of the reason why this might hold up so well. Well, that and I mean, even from a just kind of a production standpoint, the people behind Critters, especially the first one, I mean, when you talk about Critters, you know, obviously a lot of us jump to like the Chiodos brothers, you know, and their awesome design first. But I mean, Stephen Herrick, the director, I mean, the reason it mm-hmm. looks good, I mean, that guy did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, mm-hmm. you know, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, The Three Musketeers, Mr. Holland's Opus. Like, he is a great director, you yeah. know what I mean? And I think that he, not just Steven, but, you know, also the script, and we'll talk about that. But I think having him as a director really elevated it uh, visually from a B-movie to something that could kind of be looked mm-hmm. at, you know, in, a, in I think, a broader lens. Yeah. And I think a major key that separates uh, Critters and kind of movies of its type from a lot of the kind of throwback B uh, movies that we have today 
is that Critters certainly has a sense of humor to it mm-hmm. that's kind of organic, but it takes itself very seriously. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think that's a major key because you have a lot of kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of throwback 80s movies mm-hmm. these days to kind of approach it a different way. Well, also, I mean, you know, as much as I love everything Empire and Full Moon, I mean, God, that is, I think that is one of the biggest loves of my life is Full Moon stuff. But what you get in Critters is very different than what you got in, say, Ghoulies. And I mm-hmm. love Ghoulies, but there's well, – First one's a little more serious, but you know, as the series goes on, it is a very kind of like comedy based mm-hmm. series, you know. And yeah. you know, like you said, Nat, there there are humorous moments in Critters, but I mean, ultimately, they take it very seriously, you know. And 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 the performances are played very grounded; they're not played over the top like you get in a lot of these other movies, you know. Like, and I think the difference is in a lot of these other movies. Uh, everything comes off fantastical, you know, whether it's like performances, writing everything to where it feels like just everything thrown in the kitchen sink. And in Critters, it comes off fantastical, but the performances are played very realistic to where like it feels like these out of the out of this world, these events are happening to very relatable people. Mm hmm. Well, I I would agree. I think a lot of the charm of the movie, I mean, you can put Dee Wallace in just about anything, and I think it's going to be charming. I mean, she was really like 80s horror. You needed a a mom in an 80s horror movie or an 80s kind of fantasy movie and just like call Dee Wallace because she just would be perfectly cast in it. And there was a little moment at the beginning of the movie where I'm like, all right, I am definitely going to be in for this ride right now. It's a moment where she hands the phone uh, to her daughter, April, who who is talking to uh, Steve, Billy Zane, Steve. Yeah. She gets that kind of joy in her voice of like talking to her new boyfriend. And Dee Wallace just lets this little kind of smirk go when her back is to her. And it's just this really warm moment to the movie before anything horrible has happened at all. I'm like, you know what? I am all in on wanting this family to make it through intact. And you know what's great about that? Not even just the performances, but, uh, you know, the script. You know, Mm -hmm. Dominic Muir, Stephen Herrick, and I think the true hero of this entire series, Don Opper. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, they all worked on a script, you know, various drafts and stuff. And I think what they did so well with this movie is give you a family, the Brown family, that is – impossible not to uh not only identify with but relate to everyone has either been in that family or known that family mm-hmm. you know i was very much i was quieter but i was very much the brad brown of my family sure always mm-hmm. trying to get away with shit always trying to like build firecrackers and just cause you know just wreak havoc you know who hasn't either had a sister or a cousin like april you know that's so like scoffs down at her brother while trying to like always spend time with her boyfriend who again relatable who hasn't had a sibling or a relative that had the douchiest boyfriend around was he that douchey he's Uh, not not. you know maybe in in hindsight maybe it's just like i mean (laughs) i just want to punch billy zane anytime i see him but would he he, yes maybe like when you go back and look at 30 years of billy zane roles you definitely (laughs) get that but 
and he pulls up in that, you know, his sports car with like too great as a license plate, but <laughs> he's, which is awesome. Um, yeah. But like he's by and large, like he's not awful. You know, yeah. I, I think maybe that's a personal thing. Like I, I went to a Monster Palooza a few months ago with my kids and they were so excited about like seeing all these like celebrities at tables. And they were like, oh, people charge for autographs. I'm like, yeah, that's how they make their money, you know. And, like, mm-hmm. everyone had, like, reasonable things. And my, my kids were like, wait, I recognize that guy. Who is that? And I go, well, that's Billy Zane from Demon Knight and Titanic. And they were like, oh, wow. And I was like, do you want to go see if you want to get something signed? So I went up there. And this dude was charging $40 for a signature, $40 if you wanted to take a picture with him with your cell phone, or I think, like, 50 or 60 bucks for both. And my kids looked at me, and they were like, Whoa, like, let's keep walking. <laughs> What's the going rate on something like that? Like, I, because yeah, I don't that's... usually do cons. Like, what's the going rate on a signature? See, I, I, grew or... up, I grew up in the time where, like, I think I got Robert England's autograph for like 20 bucks when I first yeah. started out. And, you know, I'm not. And you like, didn't exactly... even want it. He just came up to you and said, <laughs> hey, oh. yeah. No, like, I mean, like, I, I don't care that people charge. I mean, that's their own prerogative. That's how they make money. But, like, $40 to take a picture with your cell phone. <laughs> Yeah. So so yeah. I think because of that, Steve will always be a villain to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but back to my point. Like these characters are so like easy to relate to. Right. And even the character of Harv, I mean, not just eighties, but like seventies too. I mean, M. Emmett Walsh, God God bless that that man. Like that guy is one of the best character actors of all time. To see to see people like D. Wallace, M. Emmett Walsh. I mean, Don Opper as Charlie, like, like I said, I feel I, you know, more than Brad Brown, I think Charlie is like the hero of this entire series. And for sure, like the way he's like portrayed the performance by Don Opper is so nuanced, which people would probably scoff. Like I'm using the word nuance when talking about critters. But yeah, you know, like there's so many little like things about Charlie throughout the entire series that like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I know that I'll say relatable or identifiable so many times in this episode, but it's because there are so many elements that make this film just that Charlie is someone, you know, I used to have a cousin named Gerald, uh, and he was, uh, you know, mentally handicapped and he looked and acted almost identical to Charlie. Mm-hmm. And for me watching critters to this day, like it takes me back to like, how everyone kind of looks down on like different people because of, you know, whether it's like mental illness or substances like, you know, Charlie, you know, had a problem drinking, but there's so much heart in that character. And I love the dynamic between Brad and Charlie, you know, it really shows this really great character arc that everyone has. And it goes through the whole series, but this film, especially it sows the seeds of these great characters that you just learn to love. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie evolves so much as the series goes on that I just love that he kind of starts off as the town drunk. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, like, I I knew a character like Charlie. I knew a person like Charlie for sure. Like, my dad was really good pals with the town drunk. (laughs) And you can see so many of those same mannerisms. And Charlie, I love characters that are initially seen as pathetic or are completely undervalued who kind of show 
more and more of their value um, mm-hmm. as the story progresses. And I think Charlie, it's great because he's kind of the comic relief in this movie, but there's so much heart to him and there's so much kind of layered, so much kind of going on just behind the performance that you can see kind of the groundwork for how much he's going to come into his own as the story goes on. That, and I mean the, the relationship between Brad and Charlie, uh, mm-hmm. the way it's set up in the first film. And again, I'm trying not to talk about the second film much, especially since Mike has, hasn't seen it, but there's like a moment in the second film, but it's almost like Charlie being embarrassed to see Brad again, you know, the relationship set up in the first film between Brad and Charlie, uh, there's a moment in the second film and it's very brief and it's nothing spoiler heavy uh, at all, but there's a moment where Charlie sees Brad for the first time in a while. And it's just mm-hmm. a look of almost embarrassment. Like, Oh no, will this person still accept me kind of thing. And I think that that, that really goes back to the first film. I mean, Brad is all that Charlie has in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know? And it's a film that is so layered. And again, people that, you know, think Critters is a throwaway movie will probably laugh. <coughs> but it's a film that's so layered with character development that every single character has their own respective arc. They also mm-hmm. have a huge arc together. And in movies like this, you rarely see that. Yeah. You know? Like, I mean, I, I love the Puppet Master series with a passion. But, I mean, if you're watching, like, you know, the 10th Puppet Master movie, I mean, you, you know what I mean? Like, like... They're great, but as far as like little monster movies or like little doll movies and stuff, like I think Critters is kind of where it's at as far as like throughout the whole series being consistent with those arcs. Yep. Although I think it's really ironic that you uh, just happened to pick the 10th out of the air because uh, this and the 10th Puppet Master movie have the same screenwriter. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. Uh, Brian, I did not realize that. Brian Muir also wrote Puppet Master Axis of Evil. <laughs> <laughs> Decades later, granted. But, uh, oh, man. Yeah. See, but, yeah, see listeners, no, there's, there's a reason Nat's on here. Yeah. <laughs> That's just pulling that out, just like, like it was nothing. It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, I think, you know, part of like why we can appreciate Charlie so much and the relationship between Charlie and Brad so much as the movie takes its time to get going. Like it spends a good 30 plus minutes establishing the town, establishing the people that live in the town uh, and establishing kind of the pecking order, but in like the homestead and, you know, you know, honestly, if you need to cast a rumpled out of his element, can't really handle anything more than a minor like traffic stop cop. Like M, you know, Emmett Walsh is as good as M. Emmett Walsh is as good as you're going to get. Like you can tell right from the moment he comes on screen that there's going to be absolutely no way he's going to be <laughs> equipped to handle what goes down later. And I think that like from Lynn Shay's introduction to the movie, when she's like, when he asked what's going on and she's like, John Travolta used to be a waitress in Fort Lauderdale. And he's like, no, what's going on here? And she's like, Oh, there's a bowling tournament. And you're like, that's brilliant. It establishes the stakes, it establishes this, this setting so well. Um, as opposed to just kind of like diving right in with the mayhem. Well, what's what's interesting is, I mean, Harv in the first film, Emmett Walsh's performance is exactly like you're saying, 
but they recast him in the second movie with Barry Corbin from Northern Exposure. Mm-hmm. And while there's so much like uh, uh, continuity between the films, like it's it's kind of a weird uh, and interesting shift between like actors because they have very different approaches. I think. Yes, but I, I mean, s- yeah. What's that? Yeah, I was. Gonna, I so wish Emmett Walsh had come back for the second because his character is so well written in the second movie that I really wish he had been able to see that through. Oh, totally. And also, I mean, I think anyone that's a huge Critters fan, uh, it would be a disservice for them to them not to talk about uh, Terrence Mann as Ugg or Johnny yes. Steele. I mean, as Who? a kid, as a kid, that is that was one of the coolest looking motherfuckers in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, God, I love that character so much. And speaking of the town, I think one of the greatest little details in this movie is like Lynn Shay is is on fire like the whole Mm -hmm. movie. But I love when she's like, uh, you know, Reverend and Charlie McFadden, some stranger just shot up the Bolerama lanes. Like, I love that little detail that. We have seen this music video no less than five times by this point in the movie. And nobody in town knows who this, like, clearly world-famous rock star is. That says so yep. much about Grover's band. Right, it's the number one song in the country, I think they say, when they introduce the video to it. Yes, and to the people of this Kansas town, it is completely unrecognizable. Right. Like D. Wallace, like kind of gives it a an eye roll and shuts it off mid song. Mm-hmm. I think you know, like changes the channel at one point mid song, which was really great. Well, could you can you imagine being Brad and you know trying to find something to do in that small town? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think any of us that did grow up in kind of smaller cities. I mean, I I grew up in Visalia, which is I mean, it's not that big. You know, it's getting bigger now, but I mean the the only claim to fame my city has is that Kevin Costner went to college here for, I think for a year and Jack Burton drives his truck from Visalia, like on the side of his truck, it says Visalia, California. But, but other than that, nobody knows this place. So, I mean, I, I, it's not as small as, you know, the, the city or the town in, in critters, but Brad just wants something to do. Can you imagine being that character looking for an adventure and then Johnny still shows up with like a rocket, like basically of a blaster thing, like right. blowing buildings up. Like, mm-hmm. dude, if I was a kid and Nick Cave showed up with a machine gun, my mind would be blown. Well, I mean, yeah. pretty much he has two Terminators that show up and, and blow up his house. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty damn cool when you're 12 years old. Can you imagine going to the school and telling somebody that like the next year? Dude, Johnny Steele came. He blew up my house. You know, there's but, little porcupine looking creatures that shot so many <laughs> arrow little needles into my dad's neck, but he was OK. <laughs> they killed mm-hmm. my sister's douche boyfriend, who's not mm-hmm. really a douche. But <laughs> so yeah. the actor who plays Brad Scott Grimes is actually from my hometown. Oh, wow. He's from uh, Draken. I remember he went to my elementary school and I remember it was like fourth or fifth grade. Um, cause he had just started out in Hollywood at that point and they brought us all in for an assembly and he came in and gave us like a, like a follow your dreams type of talk. And none of us had any idea who this person was, um, follow, he's okay. gone, follow your dreams, but he won't take part in the screen factory release. Uh, yeah, I'm still <laughs> well, salty about that. He's, but he's gone on to have a pretty solid career. I would say like he's, um, Is it like ER or something. 
He did ER, which holy I and I didn't think he had kind of amounted to much. Um, but he did like the voice of uh, Steve in American Dad. He's been in like every episode of that. Uh, like you said, ER, um, Party of Five, I think is what he was best known for for a long time. He was one I of knew the him from uh, I knew him from Band of Brothers. That kind yeah, of Band um, of Brothers. Yeah. and now he's in the Orville. Um, so like this dude went on to have like a pretty solid career. Like he's too busy for Screen Factory, man. <laughs> Dude's got to work, you know. Dude is like constantly working. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, Terrence Manley we just mentioned, uh, Johnny Steele slash Ugg, though he won't be named until the second movie, is a massive Broadway star. Oh, huge. Like Beauty and the Beast and a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. He originated, uh, for the uh, American show at least, he originated uh, Javert in Les Miserables. That is insane. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was I was looking over his stuff. I mean, Frankenfurter and Rocky Horror on Broadway, you know, mm-hmm. Les Mis. Uh, I saw him uh, on Broadway in the Adams Family musical when that opened. Oh, wow. That's cool. And now it, it looks like the most recent thing he did was Jerry Springer, the opera. He played Jerry, <laughs> he played Jerry Springer. Amazing. <laughs> oh, God, That's amazing. No, but like, yeah, like Nat said, huge Broadway star. But I mean, he was also in a lot of really fun movies. I mean, mm-hmm. growing up around the same time as Critters, I mean, Solar Babies was so huge for me. Like, you know, it was such a stupid, stupid movie. But like, Solar Babies was just as cool as it got. I mean, Big Top Pee Wee, you know, like, the guy did so many great things. And like, his performance in Critters, especially, I think, especially the first one, mm-hmm. like, it's so like, not cold, but in a way, very cold, I guess, you know, yeah. like, like there's no, I, I think with the second film, maybe he's a little more considerate of the townspeople. <laughs> Whereas in the first one, like, no, he's just, he's, he'll shoot anything. He'll blow up so much. I mean, there's so many moments in the film in the first film that you're like, Whoa, did he just blow all those people right. up too? And then you yeah. find out, you find out maybe they lived, but like he, he does like zero fucks given from, from Ugg. You know, or Johnny Steele. But, I mean, but it's yeah. great. That's genius, too, because that is so tied into kind of how the series evolves. Because it's yeah. that oversight that allows the second movie to happen. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, oh, my God, he was so, yeah, I'm not giving anything away. But it's like, yeah, he was so destructive in the first one. And that kind of accountability leads him to kind of take the position he changes, he takes kind of later later on oh, totally. in the series. But yeah, I, as someone who thinks about Critters as much as I do, I always kind of thought about why he chooses this form, like why he instantly settles on Johnny Steele, whereas it's a kind of recurring gimmick through uh, the first film that Lee is not able to find a appropriate form. That becomes a actual, like a legitimately decent trans narrative in the second film. Mm-hmm. But no, totally. I, I think it's it really ties into the kind of the way the bounty hunters are introduced, the notoriety and the sense of kind of danger that goes along with the bounty hunters. The whole like "get me the bounty hunters" right kind of intro to this movie is just like, oh, like these dudes are the rock stars of the galaxy. Like, he immediately would hone in on a character like Johnny Steele and be like, that's me. 
I identify with that, and I am going to ride this, <laughs> that look, through the next 60 years. Well, it's funny because, I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of trans narrative of the second film, and, man, you're, like, spun on with that. You know, there's a character in the second film that kind of doesn't really know exactly who they want to be until something feels right, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love that that was, like, the opposite case for for Ugg in the first film. Like, mm-hmm. he, he saw Johnny Steele, and he's just like, you know, that, that like you said, I mean, that is me, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's funny because, like, there's almost, like, a sense of arrogance to that, you know? <laughs> he yes. finds the biggest rock star ever. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I'll take that on. Absolutely. Know? So, I mean, it's it's funny. Like, every character is fleshed out so well in the movie. Yep. You know? And I, I think that when you have a, you know, B movie that does that, that that has such reverence to every written character, I, that elevates it so much, you know? And I, I think that's one of the most... Uh, kind of charming qualities of creators, especially the first film. I mean, to be completely honest, I think the second film is my favorite of the series, but the first one is so good at setting that up Mm -hmm. that it is about a small town, but it's mostly about a family. Whereas the second film, it opens it up to be about the entire town. Absolutely. And and what's cool about this one is it's, it's in a lot of ways, I mean, it is Critters. You know, don't get me wrong. It's Critters. But at the same time, it's very much a film about a family trying to survive and work together to do so. You know, you start out, you have this kind of friction between the brother and the sister. You know, the mom and the dad trying to, like, keep those kids, you know, from killing each other. And throughout Mm -hmm. the film, it's like the family learning to put aside these silly, stupid, mundane differences and work together I mean, their dad, that, that scene where the Kreitz, you know, shoot all of these those little pins into the, his neck, like he could have very – that guy goes through so much shit in the first movie that like it's it's a wonder why that character is not killed. And the reason he isn't because like everyone has each other's back in, in, backs in this movie. You know, like if there's ever a horror film where every character cares about, you know, every other character, it's this movie. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's something that kind of evolves through the film. Because I think, like you said, every character is incredibly fleshed out and feels very real. But I think if there is a central arc to Critters, it's Brad's. I think if there's a kind of central, like, through line, and if Critters is about one thing, it is is this this Bart Simpson-esque kid Mm -hmm. who is completely distrusted by his own family whose parents feel like they can't let him out of their sight, whose sister just often thinks to she just wants him like out of her life. And it is perfect. It's this perfect like reverse boy who cried wolf of this kid's chance to prove himself when his entire family is incapacitated, his parents, who all kids often tend to rely on for protection, are completely thrown out of the picture and he has to save his family on his own or find the aliens that he needs to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, he's often the first one, even before the dad is completely incapacitated and, and the mother's incapacitated. Um, you know, when, when his sister is trapped in the barn and starts screaming for help, like he's off like a bat out of hell to go protect her um, before they even know what the, the danger really is at that point. he, you know, is, you know, off like a cannon shot to get her. And the movie is very much about, 
you know, the dad also having to let go and the dad realizing he can't be the only one that kind of oversees and protects his family and he has to learn to trust his kid a bit. Yeah. And this kind of sense of uh, helping out and putting others first is something that's in Brad from the beginning of the movie, but that people kind of don't don't see until they, uh, it really gets rolling. Because again, like that's the whole thing with him kind of taking the blame for Charlie because he doesn't want Charlie to lose his job. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he gets like as much shit as this kid gets into. He's for the bulk of the movie, he's grounded for something he didn't do. Yeah. He has a moral center, like despite the fact that he, you know, He's got his foibles over on. I remember watching this at first when, when he was lighting the firecrackers. I was like, you know, this kid would be branded a terrorist or potential school shooter today playing with all these firecrackers. Then I saw that massive stick of dynamite that he had. And I'm like, oh, there might be a good reason for that. That's, that like, might where be a did little he get bit, that? Yeah, that might be a little bit extreme at that point. I mean, that thing was like the size of a baby's arm that he had. I don't know how he got that. That's a good point. Um, You know, I guess it's Kansas. Maybe that just comes with, like, baby formula. I don't know. Um, You guys are going to be shocked to find out that Terrence Mann's um, Broadway biography on Broadway Buzz out on Broadway.com, absolutely no mention of Critters whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, oh, that's dirty. No mention of Johnny Steele. Yeah. So, no mention of four um, movies. Jesus. So, um, so Nat, I'd love, cause you know a lot more about the history, um, of this movie and going into like the creation of it overall. Like, obviously it's kind of tongue in cheek called like a gremlins ripoff, um, or where I would say that's not the case, but more movies like this, it might've been lingering in, Development hell easily got the you know got greenlit once uh, Joe Dante's Gremlin smashed success in 1984. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us about kind of the the making of or the history of like the Critters Critters series? Yeah, I especially love that you're doing this immediately after Poltergeist um, mm-hmm. because Critters and Poltergeist have the exact same initial origin point. Oh wow! They are two completely Steven different Spielberg things. Spielberg wanted to direct a horror movie. <laughs> they are completely so different horror. things that are spun mm-hmm. out of the exact same source. Which is mm-hmm. uh, okay. Go all the way back. John Sayles in the early '80s wrote a screenplay for Steven Spielberg for a kind of spiritual sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind mm-hmm. called Dark Night Skies. Skies. Yeah. Night Skies, yeah. And Night Skies was based on um, a kind of at the that point in the 80s, very famous kind of uh, UFO encounter um, in Kentucky in the 50s, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, in which a family was besieged, supposedly besieged by uh, these aliens that attacked their farmhouse and uh, you know, retaliated. And in Night Skies, uh, there's also one of the uh, kids in the family befriends one of the aliens. There's like one good alien, so all the rest are monsters trying to kill this whole family. And that movie was scrapped, but uh, Spielberg loved the ideas of it, so he kind of separated the 
arc of the kid and uh, the the one good alien, and that became E.T. And then the family, uh, he loved the idea of a family being besieged by otherworldly forces, so that became Poltergeist. And oh, wow. Critters is also a movie that is much more than either E.T. or Poltergeist uh, based on that same encounter. Hmm. Uh, it is obviously, you know, obviously just takes that origin point and then does its whole own thing with it. But uh, the the story of this family in the 50s supposedly um, attacked by uh, these aliens uh, attacking their farmhouse over the course of a single evening um that obviously really stuck with brian muir and that was the impetus for critters Mm -hmm. even though you know it's very likely that the family in the 50s was drunk and shooting at owls (laughs) it was really (laughs) likely it was a really big ufo encounter at the time Mm -hmm. uh and so these completely separate franchises have that have that story as the their exact kind of same origin point well what's interesting is especially with you saying all that stuff is that it kind of debunks that whole like you know gremlins versus critters thing you know like oh, yeah. uh, you know a lot of people say that you know critters is only because of you know what gremlins did you know and there's that back and forth you know stephen herrick says that the script was written before gremlins went into production you know everyone yeah. kind of argues but what's funny i think really quickly is there's always like this argument, you know, if critters ripped off gremlins and that kind of stuff. But I think it's funny that Munchie and Munchies rips off both of these movies like <laughs> unabashedly, you know, <laughs> like like they make no mistake about like lifting from both of those movies. But I mean, it's it's really interesting, like it, everything that you just said. It, it's it's crazy. You know, I've never read uh, the uh, John Sells script. You know, I, I'm I'm kind of curious what direction it would have went. What's uh, kind of amazing is that um, when you go back and you read the account, like of the uh, Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, and you read John Sayles' script for Night Skies, and you watch Critters, there is one scene that is identical in all three. There was mm-hmm. one scene that was uh, discuss- described like word for word by the family's account in the 50s that comes, is like that exact scene is translated into uh, Night Skies and that exact scene is translated into Critters. And that is the scene where the mother is in the kitchen and turns and sees the red eyes staring into her uh, window. That's such a good moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, also, I, I think that uh, the Opera Brothers, I, I think they don't get enough credit with the development of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, Muir wrote, you know, a, a good script, and then, you know, Herrick and Don Opper kind of helped develop it. But even Opper's other brother, I mean, I mean, he was very crucial in, you know, setting the film up, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's the key. I think anytime you have consistency over the course of a franchise, I think the reason the child's play franchise is so consistent is because you have Don Mancini mm-hmm. all the way through. And I think the, the kind of the opera gang are the reason you have such tight 
continuity over mm-hmm. the course of the first four movies. No, totally. I mean, when you go to like franchises like Friday the 13th or Halloween or you know Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, or especially the Texas Chainsaw films, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that continuity is just out the door. Because, I mean, the creative teams, you know, like it cha- they change from film to film. Right. You know, and while, while a lot of those movies are so great and I love them with a passion, like that's one of my favorite things about watching the Critters films. And I could watch them like I could take a weekend and watch, you know, all of them because it feels like it almost feels like one big kind of story. Yeah. You know, and it's almost like and I'll probably be the only person in history that compares these two movies. But the Critters franchise to me, it's a lot like Pulp Fiction. In the, in the sense that, like, you know, the first and second film, they kind of play into each other. But then the third and fourth kind of do their own thing, but, like, loosely tie into everything that else that already happened. Mm-hmm. That it kind of weaves in and out to where it feels like one big story uh, kind of weaving in and out of each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think the third one is definitely the one that does its own thing the most. And I agree that the fourth is probably by and large the weakest of the first four, but I think the last 20 minutes of four is probably emotionally the best Critters movie because well, the, last 20, <laughs> the last 20 minutes of that movie really tries to bring uh, an end to the whole series. Mm-hmm. And I, for the record, I still think it's absolutely wild to just be able to say the first four Critters mm-hmm. movies now, because for 25 years, they were the only four. Yeah. It seemed like we got like a ongoing amount of new stuff just within the last like year, year and a half, you know? Yeah. The Critter Sons of 2019 is just <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> to me. The Critter Sons. <laughs> well, you got like a new movie and a series back to back, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's nothing to do with each other. Yeah. That were made years apart. Yeah, but it well, came I mean, out at nuts. almost the exact same time. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't a fan of a new binge uh, uh, really I quickly. It was awful. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> but Critters Attack. I mean, I had fun with it. I had a lot of fun. With it. It's this very jarring to again because of those first four see a movie that is totally continuity free. Yeah, but then again, I'm also like, well, yeah, that story kind of did wrap up. So no, totally, yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I had fun with it. As for kind of gremlins and critters, like yeah, uh, by all accounts, uh, critters was written uh, very early on. Uh, critters was a script that Brian Muir had had sitting around for years, and he just met Stephen Herrick, and Herrick wanted to do a movie with him, and he had this script. Uh, but I think another thing to take into account is that Gremlins didn't become Gremlins until very late in the game. Mm-hmm. Like that movie is a completely different thing than that was even originally written as. So I think Critters and Gremlins are wildly different movies. And there is only kind of one particular scene in Critters that I feel like was is in there because of Gremlin's success. And that is uh, the whole critter montage, kind of in the middle of the movie. The yeah. kind of musical montage where you see the critters kind of eating goldfish and playing with E.T. and biting its head off and all, all this random shit throughout the house. 
I well, feel I think like that felt one like, scene. So I think the the movie leaned like really into a lot of the other, you know, it's other 80s movies that it would get, you know, compared to overall, like uh, just little Easter eggs like the bowling league shirts, the logos in the back look very much like the Ghostbusters logo with the animated bowling pin through it. Um, the obvious nod to E.T., which is, you know, all the more funny because like Dee Wallace is the mom in this movie overall. Um, there's even like the little like nod to Ghoulies with the critter getting stuck in the toilet, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, very much a little homage to Ghoulies. So, yep. you know, it's kind of nice that the movie leaned into that a little bit without yeah. it being too obvious. I mean, even your two bounty hunters look... I mean, I couldn't help but think about Terminator and Arnold when you kind of see them in their like leather bondage gear, silently stalking through the town with their massive weapons. I think yeah. if anything, I mean, there's there's a scene uh, in in the second film at this restaurant called The Hungry Heifer, and that's the mm-hmm. only scene in the series that really feels like a gremlin scene to me. Like it, it kind of like goes back to that the bar scene in Gremlins for me, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the first film, I mean, it had little nods, I think, but like, like even as a kid, I, I never really compared it to. It's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, and definitely another thing I kind of want to bring up is because we've talked a lot about how great continuity kind of is across this franchise. So I kind of wanted to negate that a little bit by talking about <laughs> um, some things that are in the first film that are never. Uh, kind of brought up again. Mm-hmm. And one major thing, because it's such a major point of this movie, is the critters getting bigger the more yeah. that they eat. Yeah. That is a, a major plot element of this one to kind of raise the stakes of like, oh, the more the night goes on, the bigger mm-hmm. they're going to get. That never comes back. <laughs> Not once. <laughs> and the other thing I think is key is the, the way the critters are introduced is so different from the rest of the franchise because as it goes on, I think they're treated a little more like animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why I love in this original movie that they're introduced with a prison break. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they like these bastards are clearly smart. They break themselves out of jail. They hijack a ship. Like they wind up to the side. They're either like really like fiercely intelligent, or if you're watching this movie, like from the critter's perspective, it's oh brother, where art thou? <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is like throughout this entire episode, we've we've uh, we've associated critters. We've compared it to oh the brother, Coen where art brothers. thou? Uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, <laughs> like we're talking about critters. It's great. Yeah. We're stretching a little bit. No, but like, um, like you're right. You're right. There's there there are a couple things in the first film that kind of we we never see again. I mean, the closest right. we have to like the creators like growing is when they all just get together and form that massive ball in the second film. Mm-hmm. You know, like, but what's what's I think I think what the series has going for it uh, continuity wise, I think is so strong that like as a as a viewer, I've always kind of like let those things slide. You know, they don't really bother me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and really quickly, uh, maybe not really quickly because it's a crucial part. Uh, you know, I, I asked our listeners kind of if there's anything that they'd like us to discuss, and I think and uh, Jacob Davison, who's been on the show multiple times, kind of mentioned something that I think is very important, and that's Kyoto's brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys 
their design for the the Kreitz are I mean it's so just striking. I love the design of them so much, and I I, I think that that kind of template carries over throughout the entire series. Yeah, you know, it's, like, it's great. Yeah, it is such a simple design, but at the same time, it is such a child's nightmare. Yeah, like it's just this vague shape. It's just eyes and teeth. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's literally like ripped out of what a child imagines is under their bed. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah, about, it, it, lo- oh, good. it looks like a you know a rabid hedgehog. It's what it looks like <laughs> with just needle teeth. It's um, a pretty messed up creation, but it's also it's a fairly simple design overall too. Um, yeah. It doesn't get too complicated for its own good. And I think that's part of the part of the beauty of it is it just doesn't get too complex. It just looks like a, a really creepy looking child's toy sprung to life. Well, I think and, that that's what those guys excel at. I mean, these kind of simple but striking uh, designs. I mean, whether it's the Krites or Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I mean, the large Marge scene in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, these guys are legendary. And what what's unfortunate is when you mention them, you know, nobody really knows about them outside of the horror community, you know, that maybe goes to see them at, like, every convention. But yeah. these guys created some of the most, like, lasting visual aspects of my entire life. You know, As, like, yeah. I wouldn't see these films if it wasn't for that design of the Kreitz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Kyoto Brothers, I can't stress how important they are enough especially because you know i can't stress like as someone who has grown up on horror who had seen adult horror from a very young age absolutely no movie terrified me more as a child than Ernest scared stupid right really i was beyond petrified of that troll i in fact it gave me a fear of trolls in general because when I would hear the Billy Goat's gruff, I would imagine the troll in Ernest Scared Stupid, and that was too much for me. Well, because of that movie, how did you do with milk? <laughs> I drank my fucking milk. <laughs> <laughs> because that shit kept the trolls at bay. And that did better than any Got Milk commercial for me. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting to note is like this was a boon period for kid-friendly scary movies, right? I mean, the mid to late 80s overall, you know, the PG-13 rating is brand new. And, like, that, to your point, parents didn't quite know what it meant. Um, The studios were still kind of figuring it out. All they knew was it didn't say rated R on it, so it must be okay for kids overall, was the general impression. I mean, I'm not complaining, but this was the early mid-90s, so my parents should have known better by that uh point. But, you know, yeah, you're right. Um, but you're looking at a run, like, from Gremlins, Jones and the Temple of Doom, um, a movie that I don't know if we'll talk about, but Return to Oz. Um, oh, man. Think about the original Wizard of Oz, yeah. and then you think of, like, the sequel, Return to Oz. Like, that was pretty much straight-up nightmare fuel for yeah. a whole, like, generation of people overall, kids overall. Totally. Um, I mean— Absolutely, kids' movies in the 80s could get mean and Mm -hmm. scary. They weren't remotely afraid of it at all. I think Return to Oz and NeverEnding Story are probably the two biggest examples. 
I literally avoided everything about David Bowie until <laughs> after he passed away due to Labyrinth. Because I just found him so creepy in that movie. And I'm like, why is he trying to like kidnap and bed this like teenage girl while wearing this really like trippy cod piece? Yeah. Um, so honestly, like is as important of an artist as David Bowie is, I refuse to engage with him in any way until like he passed away. <laughs> That bulge really did it for you, huh? It really did. (laughs) It really, like, the Bowie bulge was definitely something, you know. I never thought, like, when we started to talk about critters, that we would be talking about what David Bowie was packing in that god piece. What's really funny is I I totally don't mean this. I sincerely don't mean this, like, uh, uh, look who I was having dinner kind of thing with. But, like... The week that David Bowie passed away, uh, a friend of mine invited me to go to a dinner party while I was in L.A. uh, for, like, the celebration of David Bowie. And I was just like, yeah, sure, why not? And my friend was like, okay, there's a – the person throwing the party, there's a a menu that they're sending. You know, choose whatever you want. They're going to order whatever you want from these different restaurants for this dinner party. I'm like, that's weird. And I go there, and it's Oren Pelly's house. (laughs) And like it's massive mansion, you know, this crazy dinner, all these like paranormal activity like props. And then at the end of the night, they go down we go down to this personal theater and they screen Labyrinth on this big screen. Nope. I'm out. Oh man, like I've never been a fan of that movie, you know, and I know I'll get crucified for that, but like there is nothing more traumatizing than seeing David Bowie's bulge in that movie on a big screen. Mm-hmm. And it's like that was scarier than any of the movies mm-hmm. that this 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 dinner host ever made. Right. But you just had in this time period a whole slew of movies that if you were a kid could have been nightmare fuel for generations. And I think that is something that was it's really been missing up until maybe a few years ago where now you're getting things like the house with the clock in the walls, totally. scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah. Um Goosebumps been, too. Goosebumps, Goosebumps 2. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the reboot on Nickelodeon of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Which ended up being for a really, second season. Yep, and I loved it. Like That mm-hmm. is going to definitely enter uh, the family viewing list, uh, viewing habit every Halloween season. Well, even, even the new Creep Show. I mean, my kids loved that just as much mm-hmm. as I did. You yeah. know, it, it really wasn't that, you know, like I like to kind of screen things before I show them to yeah. my kids. But like I had no issues uh, with with the new Creepshow series. I thought it was it kind of like took me back to being a kid experiencing these things. Yeah, and there were some. To, well, there was a couple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, there was. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, those the ratings, especially the PG thirteen ratings, a lot of my friends' parents didn't know what the hell each rating meant. Like mm-hmm. there was one time I remember. I think it was Death Becomes Her came out, and you know I was super into movies, and I I bugged my friend to go, and my friend's parents like. Oh, you know, it's it's rated PG-13. I think that's worse than R. And I was like, <laughs> no. And he wouldn't let my friend he wouldn't let my friend go because this movie was PG-13. Oh, wow. Like it was the weirdest thing. Like I I feel like parents they let everything slide as long as it wasn't rated R, you know? Yeah. Maybe this this one particular idiot didn't know, but for the most part, you know, like my dad didn't well, my dad didn't care if I watched rated R movies, but most normal kids, you know, the normal parenting uh, you know, like, uh, I, how many people 
were traumatized when they took their kid to see Temple of Doom and they had like hearts getting pulled out. Right. You know? yep. Yep. Like I, I think the rating system was still very new as far as like that middle ground PG-13 that parents would let anything slide without knowing that a lot of these movies – you know, we're pretty close to being R. Right. Maybe, and Critters, not so much. You know, I, I think it, it sits very confidently in its PG-13, though. Side note, yeah. does anyone remember Evil Dead 2 being rated double R? No. I remember, like, picking up a Fangoria when I was a kid, and I swear to God, it was before NC-17, like, Evil Dead 2 was rated double R, and it basically meant, like, no one under 17 under any circumstance would be allowed to set foot in that theater um, even after the movie was like no longer showing there. Like, do you think that that was uh, – do you think that that was almost a gimmick? Because I know a yeah, lot of I movies around that time yeah. were just released unrated like Texas Chainsaw 2 and a, a few others. Yeah. Uh, Evil Dead 2 was full of gimmicks too. Mm-hmm. That sounds like such a Sam Raimiism. <laughs> double R. <laughs> I double swear R. to God, this was like a, a thing. Oh um, my God, that is so interesting. I love that. I'm gonna have to look this up because now. Well, what's yeah, funny uh, is like the first the first NC seventeen movie was Henry and June, which is actually very tame. Now that you know a, a lot of R movies came out, or even unrated movies. Like you go see an NC seventeen movie now. Like I think the last one I went to see in the theater was Shame. And, you know, that's very much an NC-17 movie. But, like, going back, I remember, like, when NC-17 was created, you know, Henry and June with Uma Thurman was, like, yep. the first movie. And I remember, like, I was just like, oh, man, that must be crazy. Like, there must yeah. be, like, so much violence and stuff. And I watched it later on. It's like, really, it's really not that, you know, there's nothing. Yep. Even in yep. a se- and even in, like, sexuality, there's really nothing in that movie that's that crazy. Yeah, I think the only NC-17 movie... I saw her in theaters was kids. Larry uh, was kids. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. Yeah. That was a feel good movie. And yeah. I had to bring, um, so I didn't have, I couldn't find my driver's license. So I brought my high school yearbook with me and I'm like, <laughs> it was, it was like from the class of 93. So I'm kind of like, look, like I obviously graduated in 1993. Like there's my picture in there. So I'm obviously old enough to go see this movie and they let me in. But yeah, I, I remember love to, be a fly on the wall seeing like a, a guy bring his yearbook to the theater so he could watch Larry Clark's kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's about as interesting as the story gets, I think. Like it wasn't really anything, but that was a traumatic experience. So we've compared Critters now to kids, Pulp Fiction. Can we work like a Rashomon reference in there somewhere? Or... Are there any works from Herzog that we haven't really considered? You know, I, I think there's some Kurosawa stuff in Critters. Oh, absolutely. I mean, after, like, first of all, after seeing his uh, passion for puppetry in The Mandalorian, I just want <laughs> Werner Herzog to narrate a full-blown Critters nature special. <laughs> that would be incredible. Like, oh, just narrate me the story of the Kreitz, Werner. Oh, oh Lord. While getting shot with a BB gun? But, uh, yeah, as another like quick aside, I have to, with all we've been talking about this, I have to tell this, the story of how the one time I was grounded for movie watching because my parents didn't understand ratings. Because <laughs> I was, by the time I was like 9, 10, I had worn down my uh, 
parents so much that I could rent basically whatever I wanted as long as it wasn't brand new. And my parents happened to think that not rated and unrated meant the same thing. Oh, no, dear. So, like, I, I usually, I would rent whatever I wanted. I'd be left alone. But that weekend, I happened to rent Unmasked Part 25. <laughs> and I brought it home and I watched it. And uh, my mom happens to kind of walk in the room when uh, the, the mutated monster is going to town on, on the sexy blonde girl, sexy blind blonde girl. <laughs> and uh, she shut it off. And we were done. And yeah. I was not uh, allowed to rent anything for a good long while after that. See, I got grounded for renting what I thought was a, a crazy horror film based on the cover of, of these like blood red looking lips. I rented Rocky Horror Picture Show because uh, I thought it <laughs> oh, would be dear. like I thought it would be like you know like I don't know something out of Gore Zone. Uh-huh. And I, I I came from a very unfortunately I came from a very conservative uh, Christian. A very homophobic family, like like I'm still a black sheet of my family because you know I'm I'm a liberal and I you know I'm not a Christian, like they hate me. They don't invite me to family reunions. But like w- renting Rocky Horror Picture Show, bringing it back, I mean, 15 minutes in that movie, I mean, actually the moment Frankenfurter shows up, like I got grounded just for renting that movie, and it's really not that crazy. Yeah, it, it's really not like nothing really happens like on screen. I think the fact that there was a transvestite in that movie like just sealed the deal as far as right. me being grounded, yeah. you know, because obviously sure. I was going to burn in hell and everything else. So, I think yeah. they're fun. Yeah, yeah I, remember. I remember seeing that as a kid, and uh, my because my dad, I, I loved him, but he was he was a conservative too for sure. He just mm-hmm. wasn't a Christian one. But uh, I remember he I stumbled across that movie like on HBO as a kid and Mm -hmm. he saw that and my mom kind of froze like "Uh uh-oh and my dad's eyes lit up and he was like I got wasted and went to see this in the 70s and we sat down watched it and had a blast and I was like (laughs) I remember like my parents went away on a vacation just the two of them and my grandmother was staying with us because uh, I couldn't be trusted to not burn the house down, basically. Um, so, I'm sorry, there's like a big rustling noise in the background. I, I have no idea. Oh. Um, so, basically, I rented like Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time. And, mm-hmm. and then I watched a bunch of friends, like with my grandmother, uh, watching like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre together with my like 80 year old Armenian grandmother who had no idea what was going on did she like it i i don't think she really paid attention during it she's kind of like like what is this knitting a sweater or something she was just like angry that my sister and i had turned vegetarian at that point (laughs) was like really upset because she was a phenomenal cook and she would make all this like great armenian food but like we couldn't eat a lot of it because it would have like lamb and ground beef, and she's like, "Yeah, whole family is laughing at you because you're a vegetarian now." And it's like, Ooh, "That's pretty harsh, Grandma." Like, well, it's funny. Like that speaks volumes as as like just on parents and like grandparents in general. Like she was pissed about you going vegetarian while watching the Texas Chainsaw. Exactly. You, you know, a movie about like definitely like pro meat in a lot of ways. Yep. 
uh, you know, it's it's funny. Like when I was a kid, we'd go rent movies, and I'd go rent movies like Critters, and like Critters was like a staple for me, especially that first movie. Like I think I rented that at least once every two weeks, and my dad. Like the only way he would take me, and this is embarrassing to say, the only way he would take me to the video store sometimes is if I used the second half of my allowance to rent him, to give him to pay for him to rent like a porno out of like that forbidden area. Oh boy! Like, <laughs> which is funny because, like I said, very conservative Christian, you know, mm-hmm. that would have a problem with like you know transvestites in movies. But you know, meanwhile, your like ten year old kid is paying for you to rent, you know, Debbie does Dallas or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Parents are fun. That's the way it usually goes. <laughs> so what else do we have on Critters, my friend? Are we leaving anything on the table right now? Uh, you know, like I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty satisfied. But I mean, now if you have anything whatsoever, man, like I like I I love hearing you talk about this movie. Yeah, I mean we covered a good bit, I think. Uh awesome. yeah. We covered just about every I think like you said early on, or I guess like I said in that thing I wrote, like this is Ultimately, at its heart, a siege movie. It's uh, scaled back. It's you know a farmhouse. It's basically Night of the Living Dead with space porcupines. Mm-hmm. But that it really or, works for it. Totally that or Assault in Precinct Thirteen. But instead of like a gang, you know, it's porcupines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, did you get any like Superman vibes from watching this? Like, I remember when it saw the because I knew nothing about this going in to this series but like when i saw that it was set in kansas i'm like oh alien landing from outer space like that reminds me of superman like i got that vibe from it even though it has zero to do with like the comic or superheroics in any way Um, Uh, i couldn't help but think that was kind of yeah i think that's ultimate i mean that's first and foremost because the kelly hopkinsville encounter was in kentucky and kentucky kansas Mm -hmm. what's the difference really right but uh, number two um, there's all, I think it's also the fact that a lot of this movie feels like like a lot of things in the 80s did. A whole chunk of 80s horror was 80s sci-fi horror about recapturing uh, the 50s drive-in monster movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, like, this was a decade that saw remakes of, you know, The Blob and Invaders from Mars and The Thing and everything. And a lot of those... Uh, 50s monster movies a lot of them were midwestern a lot of them were shot in california pretending to be the midwest they're all about these these little tiny blip on the Mm. map small towns getting besieged by alien forces and a lot of times they were very big aliens and then the that's the key difference here is that they're very small I, I well, I think the last thing kind of I want to touch on with Critters is it's kind of a humorous thing that I, I observed even as a kid. Films like The Thing and Invaders, uh, Invaders from Mars and films like that, uh, and even Critters and all these, they have a very similar approach of, you know, small town being – or not the, not the thing, but you know what I mean. Uh, kind of a small town uh, group being kind of taken over or uh, – you know, put into danger by these outside forces. But what I love about Critters, and I think that this is kind of the charm of Critters for me, is they don't only try to take over, but the Krites are just assholes. Right. You know, and I think that's what I love about Critters and I love about Gremlins, and I don't think that they're similar, but the I, if there's anything that is similar between them, is that Gremlins and Krites are both, they're just dicks. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they relish 
create like wreaking havoc, especially in the second movie. Oh my god! Like the hungry heifer scene is one of my favorite scenes of any film of, in, in general. And Mike, I think you'll love it. But right. the Kreitz, they they just get off on this stuff, and I think that's what makes films like the Critters and especially Critters so enjoyable to watch. Is that it's yeah. fun to watch these poor families get terrorized by these creatures that just love to terrorize them. And yes. like, it's a blast. Yeah. Especially as a kid, you just relate, you just get so excited by that sense of just unbridled anarchy. Mm-hmm. Like that's the ultimate kid fantasy is that they're just wrecking shit up <laughs> without, you know, any care for anything. I think that's a huge part of this movie in particular. So that kind of assholishness of the Kreitz, because, you know, in this movie, more than any of the, other, of the others, they're literally space criminals. <laughs> you know, they're they, still laughing. Again, <laughs> it's a prison break at the beginning of the film that sets them in motion. Yeah. They they clearly planned this whole thing. They escaped in this spot. The critters are, are smart. Clearly, they're smarter than us. They're capable of space travel. So, like, but they yeah, don't they're, have they're, any. Yeah, they don't have any real agenda of any sort whatsoever, yeah. which is which is the beauty of it. They're just like eh, the Earth is like a big drive-in menu for them, essentially. Yeah, they're also, here to eat. Also, I mean, which, you know, another thing that talks about kind of the, the charm of critters, and you know, I disagreed with Cisco and Ebert so many times growing up because I love horror, and they seem to hate most of it. Both of them loved Critters. Yeah, Ebert especially liked this movie. Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel it appealed, like, this movie appealed to even, like, people who didn't really care for horror films. Because it's just a fun movie to watch in general. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely agree. It is a fun movie. And I think that, like so many movies of this time, like, you can look back on it fondly because it's so well made overall. And it's just as a real fun spirit to it overall that it's easy to go back and rewatch it. Um, you know, I said early on how, you know, the brother, uh, Brad goes back and he runs immediately into the fray. And there's just a real like, kind of warmth between all the family members overall, even when they're bickering with one another, you can still tell that family is very important to all of them. And I would challenge anyone writing a family in like a genre movie today to go back and, Look at movies like the first couple Poltergeist movies, even Poltergeist 3, to an extent. I would look at this Critters movie is just as a way to, like, portray family dynamics overall without mm-hmm. making the kids assholes. Oh, totally. Because I remember yeah. when we watched the Poltergeist reboot for the last show, what struck me was, like, how unlikable the kids were. Overall, like especially the eldest daughter who just had this massive chip on her shoulder for the whole movie. Well, that's um, what the great thing about Brad in Critters is that he, he he likes to blow shit up and get into trouble, but that's only because he's kind of just bored with where he's at. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't. He's not an asshole. You know. He's he's just kind of like a rambunctious. I mean, kind of like ADHD kid before yeah. it was ADHD. You know, he just wants something to do. You well, know, Nat and, nailed it. Nat absolutely nailed it when he called him like a real, like a, you know, live action Bart Simpson. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. So, and so one yeah. thing, uh, uh, I also want to point out because of talking, just talking about the family dynamic. There's one more kind of moment that I love. Um, 
because the family is so good at communicating with one another as kind of the crisis kicks in, that there is the one moment where D. Wallace actually turns and and actually shouts at them, which you really can tell how much yeah. he's panicking. And he just and Brad just hugs her. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's totally. great. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. No, it really conveys that and, and D. Wallace again is pretty much pretty much an MVP in anything she's gonna appear in. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean nothing but loving. What's really funny is like that show she's in on Amazon, just add magic. It's one of the first like live action shows my daughter ever watched when she was younger. And like D. Wallace looks so much like my mom in that show that my daughter would just point at the screen and yell, It's Nana, like over. <laughs> that is awesome. So. D. Wallace was actually one of the first interviews I ever did when I started mm-hmm. writing for sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so scared because I mean, you know, E.T., yeah. the howling, the critters, you know. And I think I think to this day she was one of the sweetest people I've ever interviewed. Yeah, like so down to earth and just kind. And I think it was like right before Lords of Salem came out. Right. So she kept like asking me like, "Oh, have you seen the movie? Are you excited? Uh-huh. Are you gonna watch it?" And, like it was just so cool, you know. And I think that yeah. translates into her performances. It's yeah. easy to think of her as kind of like a mother uh, mother figure, you know, mm-hmm. like a motherly type because I think that is her personality. Right. Yeah. Well, on that note, Nat, thank you so much for coming on board with us tonight. Are you back in for Critters 3? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. I think I love so, that more than most. So uh, excellent. I like good. that move too. So we're looking, this is our this is basically our plan to kind of hook you into the show more often. So <laughs> basically we'll have to do Puppet Master next. And oh then, Lord. <laughs> yeah, you better I, you better get on Puppet Master while let's stop at 14. Oh Jesus, man! I um, I, we'd have to do two think, a week for that. I think Jerry's gonna be like, we're gonna do Puppet Master, then Hellraiser, you know, like anything with like ten or more entries. Jerry's in. Yes, but <laughs> to like three or four. Um, as long as but, we never do the Lost Boys again. Oh, I think we have to go back and do a retrospective on. <laughs> So no, it's be- funny really quickly, like I, and you, you can turn this out, but like just really quickly, I think it's funny that by the end of the Lost Boys series, you and I were really like second guessing what we do. Oh, yeah. Like we were, we were, mess- we were messaging each other like, like, hey, this is what we what- still want to do. <laughs> yeah, do we still want to do we still. And I think we realized it was enough. So it was, you know, how much can you really, you know, but I think that was good because I think we'll never cover. We'll cover movies like that, but not in that style again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite so mean spirited, I think. Um, it's that's not just you know how, not what we're all about overall. Like, uh, but anyway, um, but yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Like, I am very much looking forward to like continuing on with this series, um, and then finding out what other kind of you know. Um, creature feature movies from the 80s and 90s I need to really dive deep into. So uh, anything you guys want to promote? Anything you guys have coming up? Uh, really quickly, uh, I have a couple things. Uh, I started writing for Shudder, uh, and my first article is about the films of Rob Zombie. They kind of approached me and were like, hey, uh, is there any way you want to write about what you love about Rob Zombie's movies? Mm-hmm. You know, And like that, that went online yesterday, so I'm really excited about that one. Uh, I have a really fun interview with Daniel Radcliffe going on Dread Central this week, so look out for that. Uh, I, I purposely tried not to mention Harry Potter, but he did, I think, 45 times. 
Did he? <laughs> he kept talking about it all the time. It was so funny. But uh, yeah, just those things. A lot of writing, uh, magazines, websites, that kind of stuff. Uh, Nat, what do you have going on? I have. I'm. I'm wrapping up. Obviously, this uh, book's a complete history of Puppet Master. I have some articles in the pipeline. Hopefully, uh, coming soon. Um, so yeah, I've just got. Uh, hopefully, look for me uh, before too long. At Right. Really, disgusting. You, really quickly, do you have any desire to write any more deep dives into Avril Lavigne? Um, I mentioned Avril Lavigne in my last piece. I, I don't... <laughs> I loved I don't, it, dude. It was so I don't fun. know that I can um, go as deep as I did before. <laughs> I think that piece is its own thing. Uh, but great. I'm confident I have not, in my own writing, mentioned Pride of Canada Avril Lavigne for the last time. <laughs> All right. right. Well, listeners, thanks so much. And we'll be back next week with Critters 2. 